Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to the podcast series that we call Faculty in Research. And today we have a treat for all of us in welcoming uh, Sarah Stewart Johnson, who is one of the Provost Distinguished Associate Professors. She holds joint appointments in the Department of Biology and the School of Foreign Services Science, Technology, and International Affairs program that we call STIA here at Georgetown. Her research is driven by an underlying goal of trying to understand the presence and preservation of biosignatures within diverse planetary environments. Her lab's also interested in the implementation of of planetary exploration. So she analyzes data, they analyze data from current spacecraft as well as devising new techniques for future missions. She is a former Rhodes Scholar, a White House Fellow. She received her PhD from MIT. She's worked on NASA's Spirit, Opportunity, and Curiosity rovers. She's also a visiting scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Her recent book entitled The Sirens of Mars was a New York Times editor's choice and selected as one of the Times 100 notable books of 2020. She's a prized colleague at at Georgetown, and I'm delighted to welcome you, Sarah, to this little podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. This is great. It's wonderful to be here. I'm interested always in what you're up to now. So give us a sense of, you know, the most exciting thing you're doing now, the thing you end up thinking about when you're driving home or at odd moments. What are you up to these days? So that's a great question. I mean, it's a little hard to pick just one thing, but there is this this particular project that I do find myself thinking about all the time because it's just so interesting and so challenging. It's um. So what you mentioned, you know, I'm a planetary scientist and an astrobiologist, and so I spend a lot of my time thinking about biosignatures or traces of life and, and really trying to learn how to look for life. You know, so there's there's different types of life. There's life as we know it, sort of the life that we've got here on Earth where everything is ancestrally related. It's all carbon-based, DNA-based life. But then there's a possibility that life at other places in our solar system and in our universe, you know, would have a separate genesis that would really share very few characteristics with life here on Earth. And so I've been running this project, which um, is looking for what we've been calling agnostic biosignatures or, or traces of life that don't presuppose any particular molecular framework or any specific underlying biochemistry. And it's just been so exciting. You know, we've been looking for things like chemical complexity. I've got this colleague and he likes to say, you know, if you found a 747 on the surface of Mars, you'd have no idea how it got there, but it probably wasn't random. And so we're kind of doing the chemical equivalent of that, you know, without presupposing anything about what that chemistry is, looking for chemical complexity above a certain threshold where we could say, you know, this is, you know, three sigma away from what we'd expect from random processes alone. We're looking for chemical fractionation, you know, sort of a disequilibrium with the environment, looking for signs of energy transfer. There's this um, famous Nobel Prize physiologist who once said, life is nothing but an electron looking for a place to rest. And it's just been so fun and so exciting. I mean, it's almost like trying to imagine a color that you've never seen before. But um, just intellectually, it's been fun. Like the students I'm working with have been fantastic. I, I think that's the project that I spend my time really thinking about a lot lately. 
Well, so a lot of it is kind of just developing tools and techniques, the kinds of things that one day we could potentially put on an instrument to fly on a mission to space to one of the really exciting targets for astrobiology. So it's a lot of tinkering around in the laboratory. And we've got a lot of things that are sort of life-like, but not actually life. Like there are these things called coacerates, which are just sort of empty membranes. And so they're not cells because they don't have anything in them, but they're just membranes. And so we use those to try to trick ourselves. And we look at things that are really complex from meteorites, like abiotic organics that aren't life, but are still organic molecules. And, and so we're working with a bunch of different substrates, but then a lot of it is just sort of taking a whole spectrum of technologies and trying to tinker with them and get to use them in new ways and, and look at data in new ways to try to, you know, have this more agnostic approach to, to what that could tell us. When you're looking back on this, is this the logical next step in some earlier work? Or do you view this as like a new thrust? It had its origin uh, quasi-independently of the last things you were working on? Oh, that's a good question, too. I mean, there is this sort of building. I, I sort of cut my teeth, as a lot of astrobiologists do, sort of working in extreme environments here on Earth, sort of learning how to look where there's very little life, and it's very hard to detect life, and, and sort of thinking about things in, in that way. In some ways, this is a little bit of a, a right turn, you know, sort of veering off into this sort of new new world where there's some definitive trade-offs, you know, some of these, these sort of signatures that we might find, they won't be as definitive as say like a DNA sequence or a molecule like a hopane, they'll be trading sort of inclusivity for definitiveness. And, but one of the things that's been really neat about that is you can combine a lot of approaches, you can sort of take a lot of data points and pull them together and you can build certainty. But I think this transition to try to to thinking more about life as a spectrum of certainty, as opposed to sort of a binary yes or no answer. That's been sort of a new direction for me. And I think it's it's interesting sort of where it evolved. I've, I spent a lot of time too, just curious about the kind of history of planetary exploration. And it seems time and again, we've been really bowled over by the indescribable foreignness of other worlds. And, and you know, we, we always sort of expect to see ourselves. We expect these places that we're finding beyond Earth to be like Earth. And then time and again, they're not. There's this huge challenge. We have to contend with the truly alien. And that's a really hard thing to do. But I think, you know, we've, we've sort of done that in a lot of physical systems. And I think it's just time now that we do that with a kind of biology approach in our search for life as well. My hunch is that this line of research is filled with false starts and failures and dead ends. You're <laughs> constantly uh, reorienting your work. Is, is that true? And I'm interested in how you mentor students through that maze of false starts and dead ends and so on. Oh, well, you're definitely right. There's a lot of kind of banging our heads against the wall when things don't work. And then you think things are going to work and they should work and all the theories suggest they'll work. And then you try to do something experimentally and it all falls apart and you just cannot figure it out. And I guess, you know, at this point, 
I've had a little bit of perspective because I've, I've kind of been through that cycle several times and, you know, some things hit, some things don't, and you sort of all comes out in the wash. But I think it is tricky when you're a graduate student and say it's your very first project and things aren't going quite the way you expect them to go. And so, yeah, there's a lot of reassurance, a lot of stories about, you know, all the scientists that got it wrong, got it wrong and got it wrong and then got it right in a big, big way. And so I try to share some of that some of that perspective, I guess. <laughs> and I assume that's kind of hard for some of our students who've been straight A students their entire life and assume that that's what life as a researcher brings them as well. Yeah, no, there are definitely lots and lots of ups and downs. And especially, you know, you're moving away from the textbook, you're like going to be doing the stuff that's going to write the next textbook. And of course, it's not going to be straightforward. But I think it's also great, you know, to really struggle with something, but then overcome it and, and see your way through to a solution. I mean, I just think that feeling is just one of the most wonderful feelings you get, you know, as a researcher. It's hard, I think, for folks outside of science and folks outside of scholarship in general to understand why would you keep doing this when the hit rate is so low? But I think you're right it, that the reward is so great that you forget about the times when it wasn't working. That's right. I mean, the lows are low, but the highs are just so high. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I am reminded of a time when we were together. This was when I didn't really know you very well at all. We found each other both in Antarctica at the same time. You were then, I think, collecting materials in the dry valleys of Antarctica. So what was that project about? Oh, that was such a fun experience. And oh, wow, it was so great running into you. I mean, just running into each other in Antarctica, but you were, I still remember how sweet you were just you know, chatting with all of the students and it was just, just wonderful. So yeah, so when was that? Gosh, back in 2016, 2017, I was leading an expedition to the Dry Valleys. And so the Dry Valleys haven't had any rain in 2 million years. This is like the driest desert on earth. And it's just, it's cold and it's arid and it's very, Mars-like in a lot of ways. And, and like Mars, it used to be a really dramatically different environment. There used to be lakes there. I mean, there's still little tiny lenses of lakes that are now covered with ice, but there used to be enormous lakes when the temperatures were warmer. And they had these microbial mats that would just line the benthic, you know, shores there. And these materials have been basically freeze-dried under these near-perfect preservation conditions. And so what we were there doing was we were there capturing this biological material and we were looking for signs of life there, really looking at how, if there were even cells that could survive those conditions after, you know, thousands of years, we even collected some samples that were millions of years old out at the summit of Mount Boreas, which is in the Olympus range. And it was just a really wonderful expedition. And you probably felt this too, being in Antarctica. It's, it's an entirely different world. You get off that cargo plane and it's like you're walking on a different planet and it's just impossibly vast. It's so hard to see any trace of anything human there. So just a wonderful place to do research. And, and the things we found there were really exciting as well. You know, not just the preservation of biomolecules, but also the fact that there are cells that can survive like 
like these conditions that you would just never think would be survivable. And so we've published a few papers on that, which has been great. You know, we've actually branched out now. We're looking at other field sites in Antarctica, including this place in Queen Maudland on the other side of the continent, where um, there's this, this amazing, another sort of ice covered lake, but at the very bottom of it, it's completely anoxic. So no oxygen in the water column there at all. It's got some of the highest naturally occurring levels of methane on the planet. And it's a great analog for, for these little ocean worlds, these moons of Jupiter and Saturn, places like Enceladus, where there's this dark ecosystem beneath an ice shell that's got sort of similar chemistry. So one of the things you're doing, is, as I understand it, you're taking materials from this planet from areas that you assert based on our knowledge of other planets are similar to those planets and then drawing inference to another planet. I assume as we gather more information about those other planets, it actually can refine your inference, the level of match between your sample site and the the environment that you really are interested in, but you can't study as easily. Have you revised your findings based on rovers from Mars, for example? Yeah, for new data coming in, for sure. And, you know, so this idea of kind of analog studies, it's never a perfect match, but if there are some sort of salient characteristics of an environment, you know, you can learn some really important things, like how does biology affect patterns of mineralization? And then you kind of know what to look for when you're sending a spacecraft, you know, these are the sorts of features you might see. And, you know, also just expanding our understanding of the limits of life, you know, before, you know, you sort of go down into these crazy environments, you might think that there is no life there, and then you find it, which gives you a lot of hope about, you know, possibly finding life elsewhere, if there are ways to harvest energy, if life can adapt and evolve and, and make a living, even though there's no sunlight, you know, it's all just chemo chemical sources of energy chemosynthesis. So I think that that's been, that's been really important. And then another aspect, another part of it is just kind of testing technologies, the sort of pieces of spacecraft that we'd want to, to send. And, you know, you want to make really sure it's going to work here on Earth before you send something off into space. I assume these explorations are filled with hundreds, if not thousands of scientists, each of whom has a particular viewpoint there. Give us a sense of the politics of how decisions are made to get a particular measurement device or even a a focus of measurement onto the rovers themselves. What happens? How does this uh, work? <laughs> Bob, it's gladiatorial. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just <laughs> a fight to the death sometimes. I mean, we just have such spirited conversations and arguments and debates. And, you know, the community is actually not that big, you know, it's, it's sort of small enough that we mostly know each other, which is good. It makes it a little bit easier when you're having very heated conversations but, you know, space missions, like every scientific endeavor, they're inherently political. They've got these economic factors that, that really shape what comes of the mission. And I mean, it's one of the exciting things about having this joint appointment with STIA. I think that having some sort of, you know, bringing some social science to understanding how these scientific things come together, it's really, it's really helpful. But yeah, lots of politics. And mostly it takes the form of, of big workshops and meetings where we all gather in conference rooms and crystal 
city and Pasadena, California, and we sort of exchange ideas and, you know, different instruments are competed. Fortunately, with space missions, you usually don't just have to send one instrument. You usually get to send more like six or seven. And so trying to figure out what the best packages are. There's a big thing going on right now called the Decadal Survey by the National Academies, trying to figure out what the highest priority targets from a scientific perspective are in the solar system. Lots of different inputs, and then somehow the sausage gets made and things go off into <laughs> off into the solar system, which is exciting. But yeah, it's quite the process. Well, you've chosen a career in the academy at a university, and in addition to your research, which mainly we've been talking about, you're an instructor in classes. You're a mentor to students. Give us a sense of how you navigate those two sides of your life, and then you have a third side of your life that. We believe in shared governance, so you have service duties for the communities that you're part of. So I'm interested in how you've learned how to juggle those things. Yeah, there's a question. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm actually the best at sort of juggling them all. I mean, in some ways, it's really nice. It suits me well to sort of have different things. I think that if I was only in the lab or only teaching, you know, 24-7, I would miss those sort of other ways of using my mind and and thinking and being with people like I I do get a lot out of, of mentoring and teaching and I love tinkering around as well so I think especially when I was an early professor I was not I was not so good at, at figuring out how to do the balance um because you know you also want to have friends and spend time with your family and have interests and hobbies. And and I think that, you know, one thing that's really important, especially as a junior professor starting off is the kind of, no, it's a marathon and not a sprint. And, you know, just kind of constructing a life that has room for all of you, not just this one sort of intellectual pursuit or this one contribution to the university. I think I'm I'm sort of better at it now. I think I've, I've just learned how to do a better job with figuring out sort of solutions to problems that took me a long time when I first started off. And now since I've done it a few times, it's a little bit easier. Have you figured out ways to avoid conflicts between teaching and research? Any any ways of integrating those two sides of your life? Is that something you feel better about than Mm -hmm. early on? I think so. And I I am not as good at this as some of my colleagues are. I've been amazed, you know, watching some of them and and just the level at which they've integrated teaching and research. And I just think it's extraordinary. Um, But one thing that's been really fun for me the last maybe two years or so is I've been teaching a graduate seminar. It's just given me so many ideas. I mean, our graduate students are so bright, Bob. And like, I just, things I'd never thought about before, you know, they'll point out. And I I find those things getting integrated into my research quite a lot. And that's been really fun. And it's been fun with the undergrads too. I've uh, taken advantage of some of the resources that Candles, their center for new designs and learning Learning and scholarship. Scholarship. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Don't know what the acronym means, but I do love Candles. And um, I've taken advantage of some of their training sessions about ideas about sort of flipped classrooms and case studies. And so I I've been trying to bring in little pieces of, of the latest breaking research, my undergraduate teaching as well. And that's been really fun. You know, whenever you teach something, you learn it better than you thought you did because you have to teach it to somebody else. And so that's very helpful. <laughs> I know that your students are completely devoted to you. 
I know that for sure. And I want to note how proud we are of your accomplishments as a colleague here at Georgetown. And I thank you for this interview and giving us some insights into how you think about things. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. That actually means a great deal to me. I really appreciate it.